So last week we asked uh, the, the question, why is Easter, which is coming up of course, celebrated so much less than, than Christmas? And we suggested that uh, that's partly, I think, because Easter presents Jesus in um, uh, uh, really quite a challenging way. Christmas is all about baby, gift, celebration, it's a feel-good story, everybody loves it, they're naturally attracted to the story of Christmas. Easter is different. Easter is about agony, rejection, shame. We're not naturally attracted to a crucifixion. And yet it tells us something more, prof- more profound than Christmas. That's what I want us to see. Um, for instance, last week again, we saw that it reveals God, who is in Jesus, prepared actually to suffer for our salvation. He's not just up there. In fact, his greatest glory was revealed when he was down here in the person of Jesus. More than that, when he was nailed to a cross, we saw that Matthew actually describes the crucifixion of Jesus using ironic um, um, ideas again and again and again. In a sense, said Matthew last week, Jesus' crucifixion is his enthronement. He is reviled by the people, but actually... They proclaim him as king. He is mocked by them, but actually they inadvertently honour him. He is shamed, but that is his glory. The poet Edward Shillito wrote uh, a poem, Jesus of the Scars, many years ago. It ends like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus' suffering is his glory. Jesus' crucifixion is his enthronement. That's what we saw last week from Matthew. But now we're going to see another reason why Easter should be absolutely at the centre of our attention, the centre of our life as Christians. Indeed, according to the Bible, it's the centrepiece of the whole of history, the whole story of the universe. And at the risk of a gross oversimplification, let me suggest you could tell the whole Bible story in this way. First of all, the Bible story begins with God creating the whole universe, the whole world, and creating it good. But mankind, says the Bible, sinned, and in that sin we disrupted the whole world. In our modern age, we understand that, our, for instance, individual greed and wastefulness leads to polar ice caps melting, hurricanes raging in the Caribbean. We actually know more, in some ways, than ancients did about the interconnectedness of human sin and actually the whole of creation. Well, the Bible said it right from the beginning. The whole world is disrupted by human sin. And then... 
uh, from that sort of scene setting at the beginning of the Bible, you see that you find the rest of the Old Testament story unfolding. And it, uh, again, the rest of scenes slightly irreligious. Stuff happens, yeah, an awful lot. Till we get to Jesus. The cross of Jesus is the centre point in the whole story of the Bible. So what I want us to see this morning, that's why, and I, uh, I want us to see why. And then there's a New Testament, and more stuff happens. Um, and then finally, there is God's new creation. Yes, I have slightly um, uh, um, skated over some richness and uh, some some details, but that's the story in its essence. And the cross of Jesus stands absolutely at the centre. Matthew's going to tell us why in these verses, 45 to 56. Matthew indicates what's going on, first of all, in uh, this section, by recording a mysterious darkness. Verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Some people have suggested that it was an eclipse, but actually meteorologists all agree there couldn't have been an eclipse at that time of uh, of the year. And uh, anyway, eclipses only last for a a very short time. Perhaps it was um, uh, 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 sand that had got uh, taken up into the high atmosphere from the Sahara that came across and darkened the whole uh, land in that way, or perhaps the cloud from a volcanic eruption or something like that. There are possibly some natural explanations for this three-hour period of darkness, but that's not of any interest to Matthew. Matthew records it because it has a deep symbolic biblical significance. Darkness in daytime is in several places in the Bible associated with a curse, indeed with the judgment of God. Right, right, right from the beginning of the Bible, back at creation, the, the fallenness, the brokenness of creation had been described as a, as, a, as a curse when God spoke to Adam after he had sinned. He said, cursed is the earth because of you. Cursed is the creation because of you. That was both, that's both described in the Bible as a natural consequence of human sin, but also as the judgment of God. And Matthew says, actually, that, that brokenness of God's creation seems to have found an intense expression for those three hours on that particular afternoon. All the earth went dark as Jesus hung on the cross, says Matthew. What are the dimensions then of that that curse that seems to be settling over Jesus 
and the surrounding area as he hangs on the cross. What are the dimensions of that? Actually, again, um, glancing back to the beginning of the, the whole Bible story, the Bible sets out three very clear dimensions of what has gone wrong with the world. The first we've already mentioned, that the, the, the creation, the stuff of um, the world got disrupted. But there are two other things in the creation account as well. First of all, Adam and Eve have their relationship with one another disrupted. They start blaming one another. They see each other as a threat. And from that moment on, human relationships with one another have been cursed, says the Bible. But perhaps more profoundly than that, from the very beginning, we find that that first sin led to a disruption of our relationship with God. So that now God was feared and God was distant. And Matthew seems actually to be wanting to portray all of those dimensions of the the cursedness, the brokenness of this world as he describes the events leading up to Jesus' death. Everything, he's going to tell us, is cursed. Perhaps the, the, uh, the, the, the least obvious, but really quite significant for Matthew, is this human relationships dimension to the brokenness of the world. You see, Jesus has been described as someone progressively being at odds with every single other human being on the earth. The Romans crucified him, representing all the nations of the earth. The Jewish people who should have worshipped him, rejected him and manipulated the Romans into crucifying him and even his disciples deserted him until everyone effectively is separated from Jesus and he is alone on the cross. Yes, two criminals, one on either side. But he's alone on that cross. More than that, though, Matthew quite explicitly wants to emphasise those other two dimensions as well. Did you notice verse 45? From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. You could translate that, all the earth. This is not just Jesus' darkest hour. In a sense, it's creation's darkest hour. all the consequences of the fall, all the, all the cumulative judgment of God on his whole creation is now focused on this moment. And all the earth, all the creation is going dark, says Matthew. And then, of course, that other deepest dimension of the curse that we saw right from the beginning, the loss of relationship with God. Verse 46 At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry actually quoting from uh, Psalm 22, 
a cry of desolation there. But here it has massively deeper significance because Jesus has repeatedly claimed he is the Son of God. Somehow he is God made flesh. He is is God the Son. And now God the Son is deserted by God the Father. God the human being is deserted by God the Creator. As if all all the cumulative disruption of relationship between human beings and God himself has now been visited upon Jesus. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, at at the cross, says Matthew, All the cumulative problems with the whole of God's creation are coming to a a singularity, are coming together at at a certain point upon Jesus. Why? Matthew doesn't make it explicit. But it is difficult to avoid the implication that somehow God in Jesus is taking all of that curse on himself. Finally, The story comes to what actually in Matthew's mind is a triumphant conclusion. Jesus dies. Not against his will. He gave up his spirit, says Matthew. Not with a whimper. He cried out in a loud voice. This is a moment of triumph. When Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And that is the moment in Matthew's telling of the story, that is the moment when something extraordinary happens. Yeah? Jesus on the cross lost everything, endured the cumulative curse that there was on the whole of creation. But after Jesus died, Matthew says, everything began to be restored. Look with me at uh, verse 51. At that moment, Matthew tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. It was not uncommon in that, er- that area um, to have an earthquake and an earthquake seems to have happened. And it seems to have, 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 have torn a temple curtain in two. Um, we actually don't know exactly which curtain it was, but since Matthew describes it as the curtain, it was most probably... The 
the, the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. All the curtains in the temple, actually, of which there were several, did effectively the same thing. They separated people from God. It was too dangerous to come into the presence of God. It was, it was to invite judgment to come into the presence of God. It was uh, people who saw the living God dropped down dead in the Old Testament. And once again, Matthew's not particularly interested in how the curtain got torn or whatever. He's interested in the significance. It is rent asunder because now there needs be no fear involved in coming into the presence of God. Jesus endured the loss of God on the cross so that actually his world could enjoy the presence of God now that he has died for their sins. The second thing, though, is very important for us to notice. It is that earthquake. The earth shook and the rock split, we saw in verse 51. It's the same, actually, word as the darkness that came over all the earth just before. See? The earth endured a curse as Jesus died. Focused on him. But now the earth is shaking. Several places in the Old Testament anticipate the renewal of all things as a great shaking of all the earth. And now, says Matthew, we've seen the first tremors of that. And this um, uh, anticipation of the restoration of all things then continues in verses 52 and 53. The tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's It's a strange little incident and many people have doubted its veracity. But we must remember that John's Gospel records the, res- the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's hardly a unique event. And of course, Christianity from beginning to end, it makes miraculous claims. I mean, some people have tried to, to take the miracles out of Christianity, but they end up with a very insipid, p- p- frankly, worthless mush of a few platitudes. No, Christianity is miraculous from beginning to end. So we should not necessarily doubt that such a miracle could have happened. Interestingly, it's not recorded by the other Gospel writers, but that may be because Matthew is trying to do this quite specific thing. He's collecting together a few stories to show everything is beginning to be restored. And this incident proves the third restoration. 
Relationships restored with God, the earth restored, and people restored. These people were raised to life. No doubt they died again. This is not the final thing. This is not the resurrection of all people at the end of time. But like that earthquake, it is a first indicator. The now, the rest is history. That nothing more significant needs to happen now. Of course there's significant things. Jesus has got to rise from the dead yet. The gift of the Spirit has got to be given at Pentecost. The nations have got to hear the Gospel so that there's an innumerable number of people from every tribe and nation worshipping God in his new creation. Of course there are things that have got to happen but they're just so much stuff now because the substantial thing has happened. Jesus has died on the cross and everything now will just flow from that. And Matthew insists, do you see, verse 51, that all of these little pointers happened at that moment. Matthew might not be so trite as me just to say more stuff happens. But that's what he meant. How does that then shape us? Doesn't it shape us in every way? Doesn't it affect the way we look at the world in every way? When Jesus died, everything, everything changed forever. Richard Dawkins is fond of saying that Christianity is a, is a, is a pokey little, uh, the Christian world is a pokey little world, shut off from the grand truths of the universe. Matthew and the whole Bible says absolutely no, that is, it is the opposite of that. The purely scientific world is the pokey little world. It says some wonderful things, but within a very, very confined limit. But actually the Bible includes all of those things in its scope, but then extends its vision of truth beyond the visible to the invisible and eternal God and beyond the visible to the very depths of human personality. Human beings are being restored by the cross. Our relationship with God is being restored by the cross. God's God's creation is being restored as as a result of the cross. That is the grand world. That is the big world. That is the all-encompassing vision of reality. And that's the way we're called to live, you see. Let let me give give you a few examples. Um, Tomorrow we'll, we'll, we'll go out to work or whatever we do for another week. And one of the most important things that we will be facing is a battle with ourselves, with our own sins, with our own weaknesses. How are we going to do battle 
with those weaknesses and, 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 and difficulties that we find in ourselves that we found again and again and again. How are we going to do it? The Bible says you're going to, you can set out in confidence knowing actually that Jesus has paid for every single one of your sins, past, present and future, through his death on the cross. And as a result of that, on the foundation of that, he is making you a new creature. Making you into a new person. As the Apostle Paul puts it in one place, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Those dead people rose for a little while. But the Bible says that actually you, if you become a believer, are beginning to experience that same resurrection life. So you can step out knowing that sin doesn't need to be your master. It doesn't need to dominate you. Since Jesus died on the cross, he has dealt with it. You will not be perfect until eternity when you are raised to eternal life and all is complete in the new heaven and the new earth. But the rest of your life is just so much stuff because Jesus died on the cross. You can live with confidence. Do battle with those weaknesses on that foundation. And when most of us go out to work uh, on, uh, or, or whatever we do on Monday, we'll be doing all sorts of things, won't we? Practical things. Some people think that God has no interest in the practical nitty-gritty things that we do because he's only interested in spiritual things. No, no, no. Jesus took the curse of the earth on himself. Jesus broke the curse on the earth. Jesus, When Jesus died, the earth shook. One day, says the Bible, the earth will be restored and God is massively interested in you as a new creature living day to day on earthly things, doing earthly things. You make things. He's massively interested in how you make them. You enjoy food. He's massively interested in that. He loved his whole creation so so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to restore his whole creation. He loves it when you enjoy smelling a flower, digging the allotment, changing nappies. Perhaps we don't enjoy that. But it's part of our practical commitment to solid earthly things. And one day all of this creation as we now see it, will be beautifully restored and perfected and somehow, says the Bible, it'll have echoes in it of all the good practical things that we did here and now. They have eternal significance, says Jesus. And of course, when we go out to live, in uh, for God for another week. The deepest thing 
that we will need to wrestle with. It's the absence of God, that our relationship with God, the challenges in our relationship with God that still exist because that curse still lingers on in some sense until the end of time when it will be eliminated. But here's what the cross says, you see. The cross says, you can know God. God's not down in some temple hidden behind a whole lot of curtains any longer. God's here. You can come into his presence without fear now because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so you will walk out tomorrow and the next day and the day after that if you are a believer with Jesus, with God. And he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Everything, everything changed at the cross. From that moment until eternity. The rest is just history. If you're a believer here, everything has changed for you. And that every aspect of your life can be new. Jesus, uh, Matthew also records lots of people who are one way or another confused. He records people mocking. He records people standing a long way off. He records people with some sympathy for Jesus, running to him and giving him a drink as he dies on the cross, but with no understanding of what goes on. And then at the end, he records two categories of people. One's a centurion, someone who knows nothing about the Bible or anything, but he's seen something of Jesus. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Who knows that that was the beginning of a life-changing experience of Jesus. And then he records others. Others again for whom there's the glimmerings of hope. They just stayed there. Many women were there watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Mary uh, and, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. They, as Matthew records it, will come to faith later. In the meantime, they're watching they're learning. If you're not yet a Christian, I hope and pray there is something of either the centurion or those women going on in your heart. If there is, let it grow. Let it mature. Stick around 
and see what Jesus might do.